0: This message comes from NPR sponsor, Carvana. Selling your car? Visit Carvana and enter your license plate or VIN. Answer a few quick questions and you can get a real offer in seconds. When you finalize your offer, Carvana will pick it up, so you never have to leave the comfort of home. Visit Carvana.com or download the app.
1: For some, the dream of home ownership is getting further away. A new report from the National Association of Realtors shows the percentage of first time home buyers is at its lowest point since 1981. Not only that, but the race and gender gap in home ownership is widening. The disparity between black and white homeowners reached its highest point in a decade, while single women, who up until recently were closing the gender gap, are now getting priced out of the housing market. The pandemic fueled skyrocketing home prices, and as the number of available homes remains slim, affordability continues to be an issue. So who is able to buy a home these days, and is it even worth it? We'll get into those questions and hear your stories. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. We'll be back with more in just a moment.
0: Support for this podcast and the following message come from Integrative Therapeutics, with vitamins and supplements previously available only through practitioners, including Cortisol Manager. Unlock your best self with clinician-curated supplements from integrative therapeutics, now on Amazon.:
1: Support for NPR and the following message come from Satva. Satva luxury mattresses are every bit as elegant as the most expensive brands, but because they're sold online, they're about half the price. Visit slash npr
2: and save an additional $200 dollars.: Jasmine Morris here from the StoryCorps Podcast. Our latest season is called My Way. Stories of people who found a rhythm all their own and marched to it throughout their lives. Consequences and other people's opinions
3: be damned. You won't believe the courage and audacity in these stories. Hear them on the StoryCorps podcast from NPR. These days, news comes at you fast. But the truth...
1: Let's jump into the conversation by welcoming our guests. Jessica Louts is the Deputy Chief Economist and Vice President of Research at the National Association of Realtors, or NAR. Also with us is Yannicka Ratcliffe. She's the Vice President for Housing Finance Policy, and she leads the Housing Finance Policy Center at the Urban Institute. That's a research nonprofit that focuses on social and economic issues. Now, let's get into it. Jessica Let's start by going through some of the numbers in your latest report, starting with this data point about first time home buyers dropping off the market. Explain a bit more about what you found.
4: Yeah, it's really depressing. And that intro is pretty bleak, honestly. When we look at this, I think putting it into historical context is incredibly important. So since 1981, we've been collecting this data point, And what we would want to see in a healthy market is 40% of first time home buyers in the market. Today, it's 26%. So we really know that first time home buyers are facing affordability challenges when we talk about the rise in home prices, the rise in rates, the lack of affordable inventory, and then forces outside of the market, like childcare costs or student Loan debt are holding back buyers from being able to save. Janneke, as someone who examines the housing market, are you surprised?
3: Am I surprised? It has been in a tumultuous several years that we have been through. Talk about putting it in historical context. You know, we've just seen generationally low interest rates, we've seen incredibly fast uh, house price appreciation. We've seen a backlog of supply that's been building for 15 years, since 2008. So we're in a real inflection point. And I think the home ownership outlook for the future is kind of cloudy right now, honestly, especially for households of color, for younger households, um, and as you said, for female households. Well, during the height of the pandemic, we saw home prices
1: skyrocket and there were these intense bidding wars. Janneke, how much has the market leveled out since then?
3: We are starting to see some leveling out of house price appreciation. When you think about what a typical home buyer has to reflect on when they buy a home, they have to look at the monthly payment and whether their income can cover that. So when rates are low you could afford to borrow a lot more money and still make the same monthly payment, which was an effect that we saw during the pandemic when rates were low. And as as a result, people could pay more for house prices and we did see house prices respond. Now that rates have come up and are high relative to where they were then, um, people's buying power has been diminished. So you're seeing house prices flattening. In some markets, you're even seeing house prices start to decline a little bit. We heard from Nina
1: in Syracuse, New York, who says, I live in one of
3: the most segregated cities in the country.
1: We also have the highest rate of childhood poverty and it is impossible to buy a house. Unfortunately, in my community, when people want to buy houses, they have really no choice but to move to the suburbs or just rent forever. Jessica, the Wall Street Journal reported this week that the East and West Coasts are experiencing opposing housing markets. What can you tell us about the trends we're seeing in different parts of the country?
4: Yeah, I think it was a great article. Honestly, they used a, a lot of data. And what we have found at NAR is that there are different housing markets right now. In half of the country, essentially, we're still seeing home prices move up, seeing bidding wars continue to happen. So home buyers who are out there today, it's very possible that they're still losing out on homes as they place bids on them. On other, on the other side, though, what we are seeing is that homes are staying on the market for a longer period of time. And so suddenly, buyers have the ability to negotiate with that seller. They may be the only offer on that home. And that's something we have not seen in a very long time, certainly through the pandemic. If we think about March of last year, we had five and a half offers for every home that was listed nationwide. Today, it's 2.7. It's still strong. But again, looking at the West, when we see that rapid price appreciation that they had throughout the pandemic as people move to more affordable areas, it's tapered off. And that's allowed some evening of the home buying market right now.
1: Well, the latest report from your group, the NAR, also reveals a lot about generational differences in home buying. Millennials have been a strong home buying group since 2014, but we've seen them drive off. What did the latest data reveal about how generations are buying or or not buying homes?
4: Yeah, this is one of the most shocking data points I think that I have worked on recently is actually seeing this drop off. So since 2014, millennials really dominated the market because they are the biggest generation. So really, it's just a numbers game, the sheer volume of millennials in the market. This year, baby boomers took over. And I think it really has to do with two converging factors. One is that drop-off in first-time home buyers, the struggles they faced entering the market. And the second is that baby boomers have a lot of housing equity. So as we saw those home prices go up and it pushed out buyers, it held back buyers, well, The winners are the homeowners who have the ability now to make a housing trade, make it into their dream home. In a lot of instances, actually pay all cash. For older boomers, half of them are paying all cash. So they're really winning those bids. We're talking about
1: the housing market with Jessica Louts with the National Association of Realtors and the Urban Institute's Yannicka Ratcliffe. Ted is a realtor in Florida and emailed this. In 1981 in Jacksonville, the median household income was around $24,000 per year. You could purchase a median price home for around $65,000 in those days, about two and a half times the annual income. Today, the median house price is more than four and a half times the average annual household income. You don't have to be a mathematician to understand why young people are having a difficult time purchasing a home today. You know, as Jessica said, millennials are a huge Group around 72 million people, and AR categorizes them as 24 to 42 years old. Typically, prime time for people to start building wealth. But Yannicka, longer term, what is the home buying outlook for them?
3: Great question. When you look just at the home ownership rate among millennial households, you see it's kind of holding pretty steady. It might be it goes up and down a little bit, but that kind of masks the fact that the the way you calculate is how many households are there what percent of them own homes and what we're seeing among younger households is they're just not forming so you have a lot greater share of this population either still living at home in multi-generational households or living with roommates so it's kind of masking the fact that lots of these households are just not forming and the question is what's the chicken and egg here right are are people not are young people not forming households because they can't afford to buy a home and that's leaving them with these other options where they're not forming their households or is it that as soon as they start forming households we will see them buy homes and i think the pandemic t- showed us as soon as rates got low and homes got affordable there was a lot of pent up demand and also there was a break on student loan payments so this really allowed them again new purchasing power we saw them really go running out to the market to take advantage of that window. But um, it's a little concerned about what comes next. Well,
1: Jessica, I'm curious about the value of the homes people are able to purchase mm-hmm. now as well. We, we heard Ted refer to a, a median priced home, but what is that in, in dollars and cents?
4: Yeah, every community is going to be different. So uh, if we look nationwide, we're talking about about 360. But if we look at that on the West Coast, if we look in California, the median price is well over a million dollars in many markets. So if you talk about a first Time homebuyer, imagine a teacher. How is that teacher going to enter into the home buying market? It's just impossible to think about that. Then, if we look at more affordable markets in the country, they exist and a lot of people are moving to them. And that's really a big driver of these, these areas in the country. A lot of Sunbelt areas, Florida especially, has seen mass migration flow. It's the top area in the country. Florida and Texas to move to it in the last year as people said, I want affordability and this is where I can find it.
1: Well, an analysis by NBC News found that home sales to absentee owners are also on the rise. And that could mean uh, people buying homes to rent or to flip to resale. Mm-hmm. But it isn't the buyer's primary residence. How much is that affecting the market?
4: Yeah, so right now we see eighteen percent of the market in the last month is actually non-primary residence sales. Now I'm going to say that that could be someone who's going to Airbnb that property. It could be a mom and pop investor. It could be a lot of crossover. If you put that property on Airbnb but you stay there a couple of weeks out of the year, how do you define that anymore? That's very hard to do. And if we think about these wealthy boomers who have a lot of wealth, they could own two properties. They could own three, honestly, and make their way up and down the coast as the weather changes and they feel comfortable comfortable.
1: We also got this email from Jennifer who says, can you talk about corporations owning houses and artificially increasing the housing prices? What can you tell us, Jessica?
4: Yeah, it's a hard number to get at. And certainly there's a lot of estimations. We certainly have estimations too. I think when we look at this, what we know and what's really important to know is that these corporations are coming into areas where there's a large population of Black residents, where there is high concentration of college residents, where there's high concentrations of renters, and they're buying up properties in these areas. And that's what we know is happening.
1: Janneke, inventory is still an issue. According to Market Watch. housing mm-hmm. inventory is down 30% from five years ago.
3: What's going on? So it's not just something that happened five years ago. As I said, it's been building for about 15 years. This is still an after effect of the 2008 financial crisis when housing construction fell sharply and has stayed lower on a per capita basis, much lower than it was like in the 50 years before. So we have been building a backlog of a for, of homes for people to live in, and this is on the rental side as well as the home ownership side. Um, we have been especially building a backlog in affordable properties. We've also been underbuilding um, compared to historic trends in terms of condos, in terms of manufactured housing shipments, in terms of the kinds of units that first-time homebuyers would look at as a typical starter home. Well, we heard from
1: Joanne in St. Louis who met- messaged us saying, I'm a potential first-time home. Home buyer definitely over the median age. I'm 66. I have a modest net worth, but no debt. And I'd be in a good position if interest rates were lower. But interest rates are really preventing me from getting a condo whose monthly payments I can afford. And now let's bring in a new voice. Julian Joseph is the Senior Advisor for Home Ownership in the Office of the HUD Secretary. That's the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development. Julian, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. So we've been talking about home prices surging and and inventory still being an issue. A Pew Research survey found that 49% of Americans say affordable housing is a problem where they live. What can the Department of Housing and Urban Development do to address housing affordability?
2: Great question. And, you know, we are pulling every lever that we basically have at our disposal at this point. Um, One of the levers that we do have are our disposed properties that we currently have that are in our real estate owned or our REO division, as well as our claims without conveyance of title um, properties that have um, basically been moved from uh, from delinquent borrowers uh, to the actual portfolio at HUD. One thing that we've looked to do is to assist in those properties uh, entering into the hands of owner-occupying borrowers as much as possible. Um, One of the things that we did last year in order to make that uh, happen is that we wanted to ensure that for the first 30 days for any REO property or property disposed um, that is in the inventory of the secretary, that it be limited to to bid for owner-occupying borrowers um, uh, as well as local and state uh, government, as well as uh, nonprofits, HUD-approved nonprofits. So, what we wanted to do is give an opportunity for owner-occupying borrowers to have access to those before larger commercial investors um, were in, you know, able to come in first and and um, you know swoop in and take those properties. But
1: that, that so, window of opportunity, to be clear, it's only thirty days. I mean, that's not a lot of time for people to learn about these ho- about this housing. How are you communicating with the community that? these uh, opportunities are available.
2: Yes. And what we do is we utilize, of course, the the platform in which that we have um, using our social media, as well as the HUD Home Store is where all of our disposed properties are available. So for any of the listeners who are out here who are interested in seeing those properties that are in the inventory, you can go to the HUD website and check the HUD Home Store, and those properties are listed there. Um, Now, when I say 30 days, that doesn't mean that the property has to be closed, bid on and closed. It literally means that the bid process is, is reserved for owner, occupying, borrowers, state and local government, as well as nonprofits to bid. So they don't necessarily have to have the property, property actually settled in that time period. But that window of time for bidding is, is available to them without large commercial investors being uh, able to throw their hat into the ring yet.
1: Is that available to any potential home buyer or are there income limitations on who can access this?
2: No, it is open to any eligible FHA um, borrower, which is pretty much anyone. So yes, they have access to those properties. And I also wanted to create one additional caveat is that um, even after that first 30 days, that does not mean that owner-occupants cannot. That just means that the 31st day commercial investors then have the opportunity to weigh in and bid on those properties.
1: And generally speaking, Julianne, what condition are these homes in when they go onto the the HUD site?
2: Of course, it can vary, um, of course. But what we want to ensure is that they are eligible for FHA insurance. So we want to make sure that they are uh, meeting the standard of safety and soundness. Um, and if they are not, then of course, you know, those are the types of properties that we would leave um, to the commercial investors who may have that level of, um, you know, access to to assets that would be able to do substantial uh, rehabilitation. But of course, we would ensure that those properties would be eligible for FHA insurance if an FHA borrower was interested in getting the financing uh, insured by FHA.
1: Now, the disparity between Black and white homeowners is now at its widest gap in 10 years. Uh, That's from a report this month from the National Association of Realtors. How can barriers be removed for Black Americans who want to buy a home?
2: Absolutely. That's a wonderful question. And the secretary is so uh, focused on this. And uh, in, over the last two years, this FHA administration has made amazing strides uh, to, to close that racial wealth gap, especially as it relates to the pandemic, uh, uh, causing you know additional factors that complicate it. Um, the first thing that we did in June of 2021 uh, was adjust the student loan debt calculation policy. Um, prior to that adjustment, any borrower who was on an income-based repayment plan, which you know primarily would be black and brown borrowers um were not able to use the reduced payment, their income based repayment plan um, obligation uh, in order to determine debt to income ratio. Instead, one percent of the outstanding balance was plugged in instead. Now, if a borrower could afford one percent of the outstanding balance, then they would not be on an income based repayment plan. Um, For the purpose of an example, let's say a borrower had $100,000 in outstanding student loan debt and their income-based repayment plan was 240. dollars When they would go to qualify, they would not use the 240. dollars They would, in essence, plug in $1,000, which was blowing the debt-to-income ratio out of the water. But I'm so happy to say that that our HUD secretary uh, changed and amended that policy that now uh, any borrower who is on an income-based repayment plan will be evaluated using the actual income-based repayment plan and not the 1% multiplier. So that has been changed. That's the first thing. And the second thing is then um, April, I'm sorry, September of last year, we then incorporated a positive rental history um, uh, change to our policy that now allows borrowers who may be weaker on the credit spectrum um, but don't have any you know outstanding judgments collections or liens um, that if they have a 620 credit score and they're a first-time home buyer we will consider their positive rental history as a compensating factor in the automated underwriting system this is major for communities of color. Um, We understand that credit score does not necessarily equate to credit worthiness. So we wanted to use what we find to be a major indicator of a borrower's um, intentions to repay to be how they're currently paying their rent. So we've incorporated that. And then the last thing that we've done is that we incorporated a policy about effective income. Because again, black and brown communities were impacted more than any other demographic during the course of the pandemic. So what we wanted to do was ensure that when these borrowers had a temporary loss of income during the course of the pandemic during due to a hardship, that when they came back to FHA in order to get insurance, that they would not be denied because of a lack of income when we went to average their income for that year. So we just we are really trying to do everything that we can to remove the barriers, not only from the housing supply perspective, but as well as access to credit.
1: Well, in 2021, a study by Freddie Mac found that there's pervasive bias in home appraisals, lowering the value of homes owned by Black and Latino households. Last month, a Black couple settled a lawsuit that alleged their home was undervalued because of their race. And as we know, valuations can affect people's abilities to get a loan or a mortgage. So how can government mortgage companies and HUD address this?
2: Oh, yes, that's another wonderful question. Um, so our uh, HUD Secretary, the Honorable Marsha Fudge, is actually the co-chair of the PAVE Task Force, which is the Property Appraisal Valuation and Equity Task Force, where she was charged by the administration uh, to align and to, and to convene the federal housing agencies in order to figure out how we can stomp out uh, the appraisal bias and discrimination. Um, one of the efforts that we've made from the policy perspective in FHA is that earlier this year, we put on our single-family drafting table a proposal that would allow borrowers who feel that appraisal bias has been injected into the process and impacted their value to have an organized process in order to request a reconsideration of value. But we're really excited about the feedback that we've received, and we intend to roll out something um, later in the year uh, in order to create a little piece of mind and also a course Uh, for borrowers if they feel uh, that appraisal bias has come into the process. Uh,
1: What are some tips or resources you give people when they ask about trying to buy a house on a budget, especially right now? Yes,
2: absolutely. Well, first of all, is to have a budget. And I think that that is major. The second thing is, of course, um, and I'm a former housing counselor. So I, I really believe that HUD approved housing counseling is so crucial, especially in this market. Um, and I want to underscore that uh, it's even more valuable if a borrower does it before entering into a contract, because that empowers them with the information that they need in order to make an informed decision uh, before entering into a contract. So I suggest um, uh, first-time homebuyer counseling and first-time homebuyer education. They are they're two different uh, uh, two different opportunities, but I think together that arms the borrower with the information that they need. And also during that course, uh, their their residual income is taken into consideration um, as well as credit improvement and repair. Um, And also just the financial literacy piece um, will help those borrowers. And lastly, it will help give them resources after they close the home. So if they're, whether it's maintenance of the property or if, again, if a hardship like COVID were to happen again, uh, they know that they have that, that resource in the Housing Counseling Agency in order to support them.
1: That's Jillian Joseph, Senior Advisor for Home Ownership at HUD, the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development. Yannick, I want to come to you and just hear your reactions, response to what we just heard there, and whether you think HUD is, is doing enough.
3: Well, first, I wanted to just underscore your point about the racial homeownership gap. Not only is it bigger, it is as big as it was. It is larger than it was in 1968 when discrimination, when overt discrimination in homeownership was made illegal. It's just shocking to me that after all this time and after all those laws, the homeownership gap between black and white households hasn't budged. So it's about 73 percent of Uh, White households own homes and about 42% of black households. And that means that all the benefits that come from home ownership, um, including like one we're experiencing today, which is that a lot of people have been able to fix their mortgage payments, their housing payments for as long as they stay in that home. And while interest rates are rising and rents are rising, all homeowners are getting a chance to kind of lock in their payments and and manage that part of their budget effectively. So I really um, think it's high time for us to pay stronger attention to closing this gap. FHA, which is uh, the loan program that HUD um, offers, is a primary tool for black households and households of color in this country to become homeowners. We could talk a little bit about, you know, who... Who can buy a home today and think about the the three C's of credit and some of the tools there? And FHA is definitely a more flexible loan product for first time home buyers. You know, you need a certain capacity, a certain level of income. Um, one rule of thumb people generally say is about twenty eight to thirty percent of your gross income should go to your housing payment. So just to start thinking about on your own what you can afford, um, that's kind of a nice rule of thumb. Then you have to have a certain established credit. Um, and Julianne talked about the fact that HUD um, is looking at using rent payment history if you don't have enough of that credit history, but certainly important if you're thinking about becoming a homeowner to look at your credit score, to look at your credit history and see how that looks. Um, and again, FHA will be much more flexible on that. And then you need a down payment. And here again, um, FHA allows people to get into homes with as little as 3.5% down. There's, uh, I, know, I know the realtors have been very helpful in helping raise up the fact that many people think you need 20% down to buy a home, but you don't. In fact, there's not only is there FHA, low down payment loans, but there's a host of down payment assistance programs around the country that can help people get in with less than that mm-hmm. down.
1: Well, we just heard about uh, discrimination within the housing market. Jessica, just, just explain a little bit more about what your organization found uh, around the race gap in home ownership. Mm-hmm.
4: Yeah, absolutely. And those are, those are Great points about the homeownership rate. What we've seen in the last year, and I think what is really unfortunate, is that we actually saw a rise in white buyers from 82% to 88% of all home buyers. And in the last year, we saw a drop off of black home buyers and Asian home buyers. And all of the problems that have been talked about student loan debt, uh, facing potential discrimination in the marketplace, uh, looking at the down payment all of those are huge factors. We're also finding a couple other demographic factors that I think are really important to talk about, too. When we look at Black homebuyers, they're more likely to actually have single female homebuyers. And single women, unfortunately, we know traditionally make less, and especially Black single women. So thinking about this huge section of the market who wants to purchase a home, but is having a really hard time saving for that down payment and doing so on her own income without having that partner along with her to save for that down payment. The other factor, too, that I think is quite important when we think about this is that where does that down payment come from? And that's important when we think about intergenerational transfers of wealth that can happen quite frequently, especially as we look at young adults today who are successfully entering into home ownership. But unfortunately for Black Americans, that's not available always. And when we look at this historically and we see that gap that is widening, that often is that widening gap of that down t- payment transfer of wealth that can come from a home. And so what we do see successful Black homebuyers doing is tapping their 401k, taking a loan out there. And And unfortunately, that's taking from one wealth and Mm -hmm. perhaps putting it to another. But that's not something that all Americans have to do.
1: We got this email from Catherine who asks, is it a housing crisis or a borrowing crisis? I see on Zillow houses in the 200 to 300,000 range. Is that not affordable? The houses are not all in bad neighborhoods. Is racism still at the root of the borrowing problem? Janneke, what do you think? I think we have
3: both. And we need to address both simultaneously. If we just build a lot of houses, but we don't empower people to buy them, we're going to end up with the results that Jessica just described. Whereas if we create a lot of financing tools and make it easier for people to qualify for mortgages and there's no properties for them to buy, we're going to not be making any progress either. So I definitely think it's it's some of both. Jessica, your thoughts?
4: Yeah, I mean, we're continuing to see that the denial rate for mortgages is higher for Black Americans. And so even as they go into that that buying process, if they're being turned away by lenders and they're being told, no, you can't qualify, you have to be a very persistent buyer to go and find a second lender and a very educated buyer. And I would say, if you have been denied, go and find a different lender, because it's very possible you do qualify for a loan.
1: We're discussing the cost of home ownership, and we'll be back with more from you and our guests after this short break.
3: The day's top headlines, local
1: stories from your community, your next podcast binge listen. You can have it all in one place, your pocket. Download the NPR app today.
0: I'm Jesse Thorne. Why did Cola Scola write a bonkers, extremely fictionalized play
4: about Mary Todd Lincoln?
0: Well, you know, it was 2020, and we were all so isolated.
1: I, I just started doing research. Uh, but the truth is, I, no, I just thought of it.
0: We'll talk about that and more on Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR.
1: Let's get back to our conversation about who's able to afford a home with this message we got from one of you.
2: I'm 72 years old, retired, and I bought the house that I'm in 36 years ago. We have a duplex and we rent to a long-term tenant. And that extra income has helped to reduce our mortgage payment to a reasonable level and certainly much, much cheaper than we could afford if we were renting in this market in in Minneapolis. So I think buying is definitely worth it because part of what you buy is the ability to control, to a greater degree, how much you pay per month. And that means a lot in terms of... uh, a sense of stability and security.
1: We also got this email from Joseph who says, I'm a real estate agent in New Hampshire, and although it's been harder, I have been successful in finding homes with first-time homebuyers using federal and state programs lately. Prices do seem out of reach for so many first-time homebuyers, though. Jessica, USA Today report using... NAR's numbers found this. In 40% of housing markets, buyers need a salary of at least $100,000 a year to afford a home. That's a lot of money. And even in today's markets, what are the benefits of owning a home?
4: Mm-hmm. Well, the benefits of owning a home are your long-term security. Like we heard from the caller, he knows exactly what his mortgage payment is going to be for the next 30 years or as long as he's in that home. And we know that the typical homeowner has been in their home for 10 years, and they have $210,000 in housing equity. And with that, they can move into their next property, whether it's a family home or whether it's a retirement property. And even looking at affordable areas, perhaps even pay all cash to know exactly what their next is going to be and comfortably retire. I I think when we look at housing, we also need to think about the social benefits of it. We know that people are more invested in their communities. They want to volunteer more. They feel like they want to vote more because this is their community and their home. And so that's quite important too. But we know that homeownership is quite out of reach. And so many renters, while they're invested, this may be a temporary situation for them and and perhaps less so.
1: Well, Yannicka, that makes me wonder about something you said earlier Um, we were talking about down payments on homes and how um, that is, in some cases, this transfer of intergenerational wealth. And we know that Black Americans were really barred from the housing market. It was written into U.S. policy in some cases. So how is what we're seeing really just an exacerbation of the past several decades of U.S. housing policy?
3: Completely, it is. It's it's the old housing policy playing forward. And every... Gen- every generation just compounds that difference. So, if you're more likely, you're much more likely to become a homeowner as a young adult if your parents were homeowners. And frankly, um, the bank of mom and dad is probably the biggest source of down payment assistance in the country today. Um, if you don't have that intergenerational homeownership, where are you going to draw on for that family wealth? And how are you going to start building it in the first place? And so black households are just continually going to be playing this game of catch up against white households um, who had the opportunity to buy homes in the great um, post-World War II housing boom when the government went out of its way to help make sure that there were millions of starter homes built and housing and financing to get them, but barred um, black and Latino households and other households of colors from achieving the same benefits. So I will say that we heard from the North Carolina caller about getting first-time homebuyer down payment assistance, and there are programs all over the country in many different communities, at the state level, at the local level, even parts of town. And you can find out. Um, I'm going to name a, an, an online resource you can look up and see where you're thinking about buying and what par- what types of down payment assistance might be available to you. It's Down Payment Resource. Dot, um, dot Downpaymentresource, one word.com, and you can put in the address of the properties you're looking at and find out what down payment resources might be available.
1: Jessica, I want to talk about that other growing gap in home ownership we're seeing between men and women. At one point, women were closing. That gap, what
4: changed? So women are actually second only to married couples in the home buying market. They actually are quite the force. It's it's nearly one-fifth of the buying market. That being said, when we look at the share of women, it's declined in recent years. And I think part of it has to do with housing affordability. Part of it has to do with earnings. All of that said, when we look at men dating back all the way back to 1981, they're they're around 9%, 10% on an annual basis. So women really are outpacing them, but the struggles are real, and they have to make financial sacrifices to get there, such as cutting spending on anywhere they can, taking on a second job, just to save for that down payment.
1: Let's go back to our voicemail box. Here's a message we got from one of you.
0: I'm Drew Waterfall, a mortgage loan originator with Expert Home Lending in Albuquerque, New Mexico. This role offers a unique window into the real barriers to home ownership, and often it isn't the market or affordability. It's basic financial literacy. Conversations that should have been had in a classroom or around a kitchen table never happen because they're uncomfortable and potentially embarrassing. Parents don't want to admit their own shortcomings, or they simply don't know either how can we expect the public as a whole to adapt to a changing market conditions when they don't even know what the constants are or look like
1: True. Thanks for that message. And a mortgage loan originator helps a borrower through the loan process. Jessica, your thoughts on Drew's assessment?
4: No, I mean he's absolutely correct. There's a wealth of academic literature out there as well that doesn't just talk about the intergenerational transfer of wealth, which we have touched on, but also talks about the knowledge of homeownership. And you pass that down and you tell your kids about the benefits of homeownership. And you just learn that as your parents are paying that mortgage check on a monthly basis. And so if you don't grow up knowing that, you're going to really be left behind in that knowledge base as well.
1: And so Yannicka, when we think about that connection between these big or small investors buying these properties, and then the inability for people to buy homes because they're just not available, I mean, what does that mean for childhood poverty and segregation in in our cities?
3: Yeah, totally. It's, uh, it's, Going to be again compounding these advantages that we were just talking about. Again, you have long term home buyers who have this built up equity, who can afford to kind of. For lack of a better word, hoard the real estate that's out there right now.
1: Shelley emails, we bought a business in Ann Arbor during the pandemic. That's Ann Arbor, Michigan. We've been trying to buy a house in this college rental town for the past 15 months. We make offers over asking, and we still have not yet been a winning bidder. This is due to cash offers coming in at fifty to sixty thousand dollars over the asking price of four hundred thousand dollars. I mean, Jessica, for people who are just not Prepared to pay for a house cash in hand, what are they supposed to do in this market?
4: Um, I don't want to say have patience, but I, I do think that today's housing market, for better or worse, honestly, is better than a year ago. Because when we look at a year ago, everyone anticipated the rise in rates. And so it became a very, very difficult market for anyone to jump into. Now, because rates have risen, Unfortunately, it's shut out a lot of buyers because of the affordability constraints, but it's also lowered the number of offers for every home. And that's allowed some first time home buyers, especially, to try and tiptoe into the market. And I do hope that we start seeing them. Right now in the data, I have to say, unfortunately, we're just still seeing a very small share of first-time home buyers.
1: And for people who need or want to access that down payment assistance or other forms of assistance, Yannicka, is there any downside to that for them in terms of maybe sellers seeing that assistance and saying, eh, we don't necessarily want to take that on?
3: Yeah, this was especially a a problem during the real frenzy uh, of the sort of pandemic recession when sellers were actually refusing to accept offers from buyers who were using FHA loans or from buyers who were using down payment assistance. I mean, from their point of view, the sense was, look, I can just take cash in hand. I don't have to worry. I don't have to wait for that transaction to come together for all those various pieces to to fall into place. And I can just, uh, you know, take advantage of this instant cash offer and sell right away. I think another thing is that some, some of these homes that we're talking about here where you're competing with cash buyers might need some basic level of repair. Nothing really dramatic, but enough to make it more challenging for somebody who can't doesn't have the money to, to buy the home and fix it up at the same time. And that puts them at a real disadvantage. And it would be really nice if there were better products that, that borrowers could use to buy homes where they could do a modest amount of repair.
1: Let's get to one more voicemail. Here's Caroline.
4: I'm 24 years old. I'm also a doctorate student studying occupational therapy. And based on the housing market right now where I live in Durham, North Carolina, I don't foresee myself buying a house anytime soon. My partner and I are quite content with renting, especially considering like the way that we are able to afford being in a great location in Durham. It's just not something that I think will be feasible for us for many, many years, as young adults or for it to even be worth
1: it we also got this email from jen who says it bugs me when people say they don't want to waste their money on renting i'm sorry but if you have a roof over your head you're not wasting money that said landlords are also losing their minds over what they charge for rent jessica i mean when is renting over buying a house a better move for someone
4: Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think there's lots of scenarios that we can all imagine if someone's in that location for a temporary time period or whether they don't know if they're going to keep that job. And so they might want to move to a different city in the country to be close to a different job or friends and family. And that could actually have a transition there. Also, when you're saving for a down payment, it makes a lot of sense to save with a roommate in a smaller property. Uh, But we know that rents did rise dramatically last year. There were even bidding wars for rental units in some areas of the country. It's just it it is crazy. And I I can really feel for these callers. And for the 24-year-old who's a student uh, who's dreaming of homeownership, yes, absolutely. We're seeing that first-time homebuyers, their age actually jumped to 36 years old this year as a median, 36 years old. So, it may be down the path. It may be a dream, but it is still perhaps in your future. Now, a recent
1: survey from Real Estate Witch found that 73% of people had regrets about buying their houses. 90% of those surveyed said they were unprepared for the expense of a new property. Uh, they cited costs like property taxes or renovations and utilities.
3: Yannicka, how can someone
1: prepare for home ownership and avoid regret?
3: I would say, once again, housing counseling. Go see your housing counseling. Find out if homeownership's right for you. I would also suggest people look at the CFPB's website, consumerfinance.gov, owning a home. There's a lot of material there to help you be prepared for what you're signing up for and understand what's coming. But don't give up. It's worth it in the long run. Jessica, what will you be watching for in the market
1: to see if purchasing homes becomes a more viable option for more people?
4: Uh, We need more building. And we also interest rates, if they start ticking down, that's going to open up the credit box.
1: That's Jessica Loutz. She's the Deputy Chief Economist and Vice President of Research at the National Association of Realtors. Also with us, Yannicka Radcliffe, the Vice President for Housing Finance Policy at the Urban Institute. Jessica, Yannicka, thank you for speaking with us. Today's producer was Michelle Harvin. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk again tomorrow. This is 1A.
0: This message comes from NPR sponsor Grammarly, the secure AI writing partner that understands your business. With Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. This message comes from Capital One, offering commercial solutions you can bank on